All right. Okay, everyone. So let us carry on. And uh, we are in the middle of this marvelous gradual training. We've come to the part where we are giving up the five hindrances. And this is where we get very close to uh, this real samadhi, getting involved with meditation practice. Uh, we're kind of moving, coming towards the end of the path, so to speak, at this point. Uh, so it's getting very uh, exciting, very profound at this point. Uh, and uh, so we're going to now look in a bit more detail at the idea of giving up the five hindrances and exactly how that happens and how it is done and what it means. Uh, and then we have these uh, uh, beautiful similes as well that talk about... Uh, the five hindrances, how they can be understood from that point of view. So let's um, uh, we'll just read a little bit further and then we'll do as usual and comment on these things as we go along here. So uh, I hope you all know where we are. This is page five now uh, in these uh, notes. And uh, this is how it goes. This is what the Buddha has to say. Giving up desire for the world... They meditate with a heart rid of desire, cleansing the mind of desire. Giving up ill will and malevolence, they meditate with a mind rid of ill will, full of compassion for all living beings, cleansing the mind of ill will. Giving up dullness and drowsiness, they meditate with a mind rid of dullness and drowsiness, perceiving light. Mindful and aware, cleansing the mind of dullness and drowsiness. Giving up restlessness and remorse, they meditate without restlessness. The mind peaceful inside, cleansing the mind of restlessness and remorse. Giving up doubt, they meditate having gone beyond doubt. Not undecided about skillful qualities, cleansing the mind of doubt. So these are the five hindrances, and uh, most of you will know what they are by, by heart already. And uh, there's a lot that can be said about these five hindrances. Uh, and um, um, one of the kind of interesting points about the five hindrances that I mentioned before is that usually they are mentioned at the very towards the very end of. Uh, the gradual training just before you enter samadhi. And for that reason, you can know that they actually refer to very refined problems in the mind. And it's a, that's a very important point, because what that means is that a lot of the cleansing of the mind, a lot of freeing the mind from defilements, actually happens earlier on on the path. Yeah? And we have seen this already. We have seen the idea of sense restraint. That is an abandonment of desire and ill will or aversion. Yeah? We're seeing that through the idea of uh, situational awareness, also called full awareness, etc. That is also uh, helping and abandoning these kind of defilements. The idea of contentment, the contentment is the opposite of desire, so again refers to desire. So a lot of defilements have already been given up and they happen through other ways, other means than meditation practice. So a lot of the Overcoming of the initial defilements happens in everyday life. Yeah, it happens when we do other things than meditate, and this kind of enriches, or it makes the, uh, you know, and gives an idea of the profundity of the path, even in ordinary living experience. 
the idea of overcoming these things just in our daily interaction with uh, whatever it is that we're doing, with people, with things, with situations, etc. So this is a, an, an important point. And what you will notice, of course, is that in that everyday interaction, it is the first two hindrances uh, that stand out. It is the desire and the ill will. Uh, these are the two things uh, that we deal with in everyday life. We don't really deal so much with the last three, yeah, the restlessness uh, and the um, uh, tiredness and dullness. These are not so important. And why is that? Why are these first two ones? Why do they stand out like that? Uh, and uh, one of the reasons is that the last three of the hindrances, uh, they are very much um, arise because of the first two. Yeah? So if you can reduce the first two, you're also reducing the last three of the hindrances. So we focus on the first two, at least initially. They are the main ones. And a lot of the tiredness that people have in the world, it is because of the first two, yeah, exerting themselves too much, running around, trying to sort out all the, the sensory world, which is impossible to sort out anyway, or tiring themselves because they get angry and Ill, have ill will and all of these kind of things. Uh, and the doubt is in large part overcome by understanding the word of the Buddha properly, investigating your own experience. It kind of comes through that. Uh. So for that reason, to a very large extent, the, the hindrances we should focus on and they're not really called the hindrances yet at this particular point, uh, are the first two. Uh, they are what matter. Uh, yeah? If you have a problem with too much tiredness, ask yourself if you're having a problem with ill will or a problem with too much desire. That's what you should ask yourself. Too much restlessness also very likely comes from that area. The first two hindrances are the, by far the most important ones. Uh, that's where the focus should be. Uh, in fact, they're not really called hindrances yet, even at this point. Uh, and then... Uh, comes uh, this. Can we come to this point? Your mindfulness, you have largely abandoned desire and ill will. These are the two things that take the mind out of the present. If you desire, you tend to be in the future. You are expecting something. If you have ill will, it's very often about the past. It's about what someone has done towards you. So these two defilements take you out of the present. And you have to make them much reduced. You have to have a fairly clear mind already to enable you to stay in the present uh, and then focus on your meditation object. Uh, yeah, this is why meditation in Buddhism, uh, what the Buddha talks about as meditation is actually quite profound. Yeah, it is already a kind of a solid state of mindfulness there. Then meditation becomes possible. Uh, it's important to get these things right. Uh, yeah, it's just because if you don't get it right, you don't really know what to do. You don't know what is appropriate for your mind state. If you are very restless, your mind is all over the place, maybe it probably is the wrong time to sit down to meditate. Or if you sit down to meditate, don't meditate, just relax for a while. Establish that mindfulness before you watch the breath, before you do whatever. Knowing the sequence here actually matters enormously. Only when mindfulness is there, only then can you watch the breath, watch the meditation object. So the defilements that we're talking about now, uh, these are the refined defilements that you are mindful, but you're not kind of, the mindfulness is not super strong. Uh, yeah? There's still little things going on in the mind. Uh, sometimes you don't even know what it is. Uh, that is the problem. Yeah, you, okay, you meditate and things seem to be going well, but you don't go any further. There's something that blocks you. It can be a little bit unclear sometimes what 
actually is going on, how this actually works. So, so um, these are the five hindrances. Now, one of the interesting things here uh, is that it just tells us uh, that we overcome them. Yeah, it says uh, you overcome the hindrances, uh, the hindrance this, hindrance that. It doesn't really say anything about how you do this. Yeah, it's kind of a bit unclear. Okay, you get rid of desire, but exactly what do you do to get rid of that desire? So this is, uh, we need to talk about that a little bit, because otherwise it's kind of very, we don't know what we're supposed to happen here. And uh, as I was saying before, we can tell uh, from the context here that this is already now about meditation practice. Uh, we can see that because it's about going into a secluded lodging, uh, yeah, the wilderness, an empty hut or an empty room at Anagrove or whatever it is. Uh, and then you practice your meditation there. Yes, we know it's about meditation practice. Uh, so the context here of removing these defilements is meditation, basically watching the breath. Yeah? That's basically what it is about. So the idea here is that as you watch the breath, as you allow the meditation on the breath to deepen, becoming more peaceful, giving rise to a bit of joy, all of these things, as you allow that process to happen, the defilements actually disappear all by themselves. Yeah? So this is kind of the magic of this path. If you are ready, if the mind is in the right space uh, and the mind, you, you have enough renunciation already, you have enough understanding of the downside of the five senses and all of these things, uh, if you just stay with the breath uh, and you allow that process to happen, uh, eventually the hindrances just disappear by themselves. Why is that? How is that possible, you may think? And the reason why that happens is because especially the first two hindrances, and in fact all the five hindrances, they need things to sustain them. Yeah, if you are going to have a sensual desire or, or desire for the sensory world, uh, you need to reflect on that sensory world. There needs to be an inclination towards that. Uh, there needs to be a seeing the beauty in that world, the seeing the positive in that world. If you're going to have ill will, uh, you need to see the repulsiveness uh, or the uh, that thing which you reject in another person or whatever. Uh, without that fuel, those defilements gradually decrease. So by staying with the breath, uh, by not thinking about things, uh, actually the defilements disappear all by themselves. It's like magic. Yeah? <laughs> you just sit back uh, and you just enjoy the process and it just happens. Uh, and it gets more solid, it gets more peaceful, the joy arises. Uh, I haven't... Uh, brought the Anapanasati Sutta into this retreat. I should have done that. It's such a beautiful sutta. And it shows you kind of the gradual stages of becoming more and more peaceful, more and more blissful, stage by stage. And it's like an automatic process. You just hang out with the breath. Your best mate. There's no, no mate like the breath, right? And that's kind of marvelous when that, when that happens. And you're able to do this. Stay with the breath. So this is really the process. But of course, it doesn't always work like that. Uh, yeah, sometimes, as I mentioned before, you reach a plateau. It doesn't go any deeper. Uh, and it seems to stop. Uh, and then when it stops, you know that there is something that is blocking you. Yeah? And then we have to try to unblock the process so that uh, the, 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 the watching the breath can become deeper over time. Uh, and so the answer question is, well, what is it that blocks it? And that's two ways of, of, of uh, discovering that and one way of discovering it and this is where the idea of insight comes in yeah you look at your experience and you try to understand what is going on 
And the other way is just to go by the teachings of the Buddha and to assume that you know what the problem is. So if we go with the teachings of the Buddha, the assumption, the thing which will normally block your meditation is some kind of attachment to the world, right? Because you're holding on to something and you can't even see it usually. It is a very subtle kind of attachment, holding on. Yeah, it can be things like, uh, you know, you, like your body, for example. You feel your body is disappearing a little bit, but no, you don't want your body to disappear. Please, stay here. Yeah? There's some deep down uh, attachment to the body. You can't let it go. Or it can be attachment to the, the other senses. Can be attachment to the idea of hearing, for example. Yeah, when the, when, when the uh, uh, meditation becomes very deep, the hearing starts to fade away. And of course, that can be kind of concerning, yeah, because the five senses is our world. We've always lived in the world of the five senses, and abandoning that world is actually it takes it, it takes wisdom. It takes a bit of courage, maybe even, yeah, because it kind of feels. Fearful, maybe, when you go there, at least initially, even though there's nothing to fear, even though it is the best thing that ever happened to you, still, because of our lack of um, experience with these things, it still can seem fearful sometimes. So you can see that there is a problem there. Yeah? There's some kind of attachment deep down. It doesn't allow you to go deeper. And then what you can do to overcome that is some of these reflections about the downside of that world just isn't that interesting, that world, yeah? What is there to see anyway? Like Ajahn Brahm used to say in the old days, yeah, oh, you want, people want to travel around the world, they want to see the great wall of China, whatever, go to the top of the monastery, look at the wall around the monastery, that's good enough, yeah? Forget about the wall, wall of, great wall of China. It's just variations on the theme, that's what he was saying. It's not, I mean, of course, the great wall of China is just little marginally more impressive than the wall around the monastery. <laughs> but uh, it's still just variations on the theme, ultimately. It's not that exciting. Yeah? Yeah, the world is just more of the same. So you start to understand that that world, it just isn't that interesting. Yeah? What does it matter? And then you give up the whole idea, actually, don't need to hear anything, don't need to see anything. And eventually you give up your entire attachment to those senses, gradually, gradually. And you can go deeper in the meditation as a consequence. So this is where you see the problem, yeah? And then you, as you do this, you also develop the joy by, you know, by reflecting appropriately. We talked about this a little bit before. This is the general idea of how to do this. But there's also the more specific idea of understanding your specific predicament. What is that blocks you in your meditation? And when you know how the Satipatthana Sutta is framed or phrased, Satipatthana Sutta, there's a lot in there about understanding your mind state. See how it talks about the Chitta Nupassana, contemplation of mind, Vedra Nupassana, contemplation of feelings, Dhamma Nupassana, contemplation of phenomena or principles, depending on who the translator is. And all of that is really about understanding the defilements of the mind, understanding the pure states of mind, understanding what they are, yeah? especially the more refined aspects of these things. So you contemplate your experience. And the way you do this, usually the way this is described, like in the Anapanasati Sutta, is that you go through your meditation experience, yeah, like you watch your breath or whatever, and then you come out of the breath. It's like you come out, this kind of natural going in and then coming out. There's a kind of natural curve uh, to that experience. And then when you come out, 
you ask yourself, you look back, and you think, well, what, what worked? What did not work? What blocked me? Yeah? Sometimes you may be able to see a blockage. Or sometimes you see that I went deeper than last time. Why did I go deeper this time compared to last time? And that difference between the two will show you what blockage you have abandoned. So this is how you contemplate your experience. Yeah? You start to see the things that are actually blocking you. What are the specific things in your personal experience that stop you from meditation. And this way, gradually, you overcome the hindrances, yeah? based on simply mindfulness of breathing, nothing more. Huh? And very often when we talk about insight in Buddhism, huh? understanding things according to reality, huh? there's like two different kinds of insight. There's the insight prior to samadhi, prior to the mind becoming really peaceful, and then there's the insight afterwards, huh? And the insight before samadhi is very much insight into how to achieve samadhi. Yeah. And, and those, it, because this is where we want to go, because we know that once you have samadhi, then you can see things according to reality. If you haven't got samadhi, you won't be able to see very deeply. So you want to achieve samadhi first. So we ask ourselves, what are the insights required to achieve samadhi? And these are, in large part, those kind of insights. There's actually more, yeah, because you can also learn to contemplate impermanence and that sort of thing as well. That is also useful for samadhi. We will have a look at that later on. We're going to discuss the five khandhas a little bit and how to integrate that into the mindfulness of breathing practice. Uh, but uh, a large part of it is actually insight into the defilements of the mind. Uh, this is a very important uh, clarity that we need. Uh, and so you can see here, yeah, I have always argued that calm and insight go together, or calm and clear seeing go together. And this is exactly what you see here. Yeah, you, when you become more calm, you see more clearly. When you see more clearly, you become more calm. And you build up these things together, trying to understand what is going on, achieving more calm, etc., etc. So this is how this happens, ideally. <laughs> So uh, as you do this, you then get rid of desire, yeah, you cleanse the mind of desire by just the allowing the mind to become deeper and deeper and deeper, more and more peaceful. Desire is given up. Uh, you give up ill will and malevolence. Uh, yeah, you have a mind without ill will, full of compassion for all living beings. Uh, the Pali is hitta nukampa. Anukampa is, uh, is compassion. Anukampa literally means something like to tremble along with someone else. Uh, yeah, when you see someone very, a lot of suffering, you can kind of tremble almost yourself when you see the suffering of other people. You tremble along with them. Hita is benefit, yeah? So you are kind of, you are dwelling or doing, you experience, you, you want to help other people both through compassion and for their benefit, basically. Yeah? So this is the kind of the opposite of ill will here. In this case, compassion is uh, emphasized. Uh, you give up dullness and drowsiness, and the opposite of dullness and drowsiness is that the mind is bright, yeah? perceiving light, it says here. This is light in a general sense, not the kind of a, a, a nimitta or anything like that. Aloka is just like daylight, yeah? just light in a general sense. The mind becomes bright. And you, here comes the idea of mindfulness and full aware, satisampajanya again, because you gain great clarity 
of mind at this point. Then you have the restlessness and remorse is given up. You feel peaceful within. Yeah. Uh, you cleanse the mind of restlessness and remorse. If you have remorse, the mind is very difficult to make it peaceful because the remorse makes you ruminate and think about things and worry and you have a bit of anxiety and these kind of things that comes with the idea of remorse. So this is another reason why you want to purify your conduct to the highest possibility, highest level. You give up doubt, you meditate having gone beyond doubt, Un, you're not undecided about skillful qualities. Yeah, you understand when the mind is in a skill, good state and you understand bad states. And you understand this too in a very deep way. Yeah, this is kind of one of the problems. Is that very often we don't even know what is skillful and unskillful. The mind feels wonderful, marvelous, and still you know, haven't attained deep samadhi. Why? What's going on? Okay, doubt. There it is. So now let's have a look at the similes that go with these five hindrances. And so the first one, suppose a man who has got into debt where to, imp- where to apply himself to work and his efforts proved successful. He would pay off the original loan and have enough left over to support his partner thinking about this, he would fill, be filled with joy and happiness. So uh, we have here the uh, sensual pleasures or the sensory world. Yeah, the, the, the desire for the sensory things in the world are like a debt. It's kind of interesting, isn't it? Uh, it's very easy to get indebted in that case. So you have this debt. Why is it like a debt? And uh, there's probably many ways of uh, thinking about these things, but it's probably very simple. Yeah, when you when you attach to something in the world, uh, you know you're going to have to give it up at some point. At some point, it will be taken away from you. So the moment you are attached, you will have to experience some kind of suffering in the future when that thing gets taken away from you. Yeah, every time you desire something, every time you're attached to something, every every time you're saying in the future, give me suffering here. Yeah. So that's the debt, yeah? You have to pay it back eventually. Yeah? And uh, there may be other ways of um, thinking about this simile, but this is certainly one way. Yeah? So um, you, uh, and then you pay off that debt. What does that mean? Well, what that means is that you give up those attachments, yeah? You, don't, uh, you give up those holding on to things in the world, uh, and as you do that, th- there's, there's no debt anymore because you won't suffer in the future when you do that, uh, and this is one of those problems in meditation practice, yeah, the attachments that we have. It's not often we, I think this is one of the problems of some of the translations we have. We translate these things as sensual pleasures, uh, and we think of them as the desire that we have, a strong kind of raging desires in the mind. Uh, but it's often not like that. Often there isn't much desire there. There is just this deep-seated attachment to things in the world. Uh, yeah? And that is often the problem, uh. And that is what we need to overcome. And this is kind of what is why there is a debt here. So uh, these translations of these Pali words, actually it matters a lot. Karma is the Pali word. Actually here it's called Loke Abhidja, but uh, Karma. And Karma is both the objects of the world and the personal desire that you have. But usually it actually means the objects, which is kind of interesting here. So the problem is the 
all the objects, all the things that we experience through the senses in the world. Uh, that is the problem. Uh, you pay back the debt, yeah, you let go of everything in that sensory world, uh, and then, uh, and then what does it say? Then uh, you are successful, yes, this means your spiritual path, obviously. You pay off the loan, and you have something left over to support a partner. Uh, I'm not sure exactly what the partner is, and maybe the partner is your Kalyanamitta. Uh, and you kind of say, yes, I have found the path. Yeah, here, this is the way, listen to me. Uh, do this and do that, and you will also kind of get rid of this loan and this debt, and then you will be able to attain some samadhi. Uh, and so when you see that, uh, you are filled with joy and happiness. This is the result of overcoming that world, uh, is that you feel joyful and happy. And this is, uh, again, you know, what you see in the sutta of mindfulness of breathing, the gradual development of joy and happiness in the mind uh, as you overcome these things. Uh. And then you can support others. At this point, you can become like a teacher, I suppose. Uh, maybe you can become a teacher even earlier, but certainly at this point, uh, when you know how to overcome all the defilements, uh, yeah, at this point, you are, when you are free of uh, all the hindrances, you're free of doubt, uh, then you know the path. You understand how this mind works. Yeah, there's no more doubt at this particular point. You don't have to become a stream enter to be fully free of doubt. Already, if you attain a deep state of samadhi, you already temporary, free of doubt. Yeah? And then you can uh, help others as well. Huh? So the simile of debt. The simile next one. Suppose there was a person who was sick, suffering, gravely ill. They would lose their appetite and get physically weak. But after some time they would recover from that illness and regain their ap appetite and their strength. Thinking about this, uh, they would be filled with joy and happiness. So, uh, being having ill will is like being sick, according to the suttas. Yeah, it's, it's kind of fascinating. It's like an illness of the mind. You're temporarily insane, as it says elsewhere in the suttas. It's insanity to get angry about things. That kind of, that's kind of fascinating. Yeah, because so much of life we think, yeah, a bit of anger is good. Yeah, you, sometimes you have to tell people off. Uh, sometimes you have, to be self, you have to be kind of righteous. Yeah, the world is going badly. If you're not angry about things, who's going to listen to you? Anger gives you the energy to do things in the world, right? Uh, and it is an unsustainable energy that you get from anger. Uh, very soon enough, we feel very tired because the anger leads to depletion of the energy of the mind and then you feel really exhausted afterwards and you have to go to sleep. It is not really a kind of anger. That is, anger is not a sustainable energy. The sustainable energy is the energy of the mind that comes through practicing in the right way. Yeah? Practicing well, getting the joy up. That kind of energy is sustainable. I mean, that too gets depleted when you go into the world, but it is not an energy that kind of is self-defeating. It doesn't lead to tiredness. If you keep on meditating, you can sustain it. Ultimately, just keep on going yeah, with this kind of energy. Yeah. This is the energy you want. So don't be crazy. I <laughs> so it's fascinating. You know, why is it that you're crazy? Because really, when you're angry, we see the world in such a distorted way. We don't understand what is right. You make all kinds of crazy decisions when you are really angry. Yeah, and you treat other people badly, and then you regret it afterwards. And the re reason you regret it afterwards is because then you see clearly, 
and beforehand your mind was distorted. Huh? So it is like an illness of the mind. Uh, and so overcome that illness, become healthy. And there is, I think, some research also that even shows that people with a lot of anger, they, they heal more slowly. And some people argue that cancers can come from deep-seated anger that might be suppressed. And I think it, that is quite likely to be true because the connection between the body and the mind is very important. Yeah? So uh, it, it is almost like an illness, in almost a, not just uh, metaphorically, but it actually has a direct link to, to illnesses in the body sometimes. Uh. So, um, yeah, so again, we have talked already a lot about how to overcome that ill will. And so please apply those uh, methods and then also develop the metta and compassion at the same time. Uh, and as you do so, you will gradually overcome that completely. But again, these are refined aspects of ill will that we're seeing here. Yeah, Small irritations, uh, maybe a um, little bit of ill will towards oneself even sometimes. Uh, Anyway, next one. Suppose a person was imprisoned in jail, but after some time they were released from jail, safe and sound, with no loss of wealth. Thinking about this, they would be filled with joy and happiness. Yeah, this is the idea of uh, tiredness and uh, drowsiness. Yeah, you are in jail. The mind is kind of caught up in this. You know what it's like when you're tired. It's like you are... You know, you can't really think properly, you have no energy, and you, you, you know, the, the, your faculties don't work, and you're kind of locked into that state, and you just have to wait for it to pass. You have to lie down or whatever. You can't really do very much at that particular time. And uh, so, you, uh, again, you have to overcome this and allow it to disappear. And uh, so you uh, gradually build up the energy of the mind. And one of the most important ways of doing that is just to let things be here. We deplete the energy by doing and by allowing the mind to become still, the energy comes back. Yeah? Stillness, samadhi, leads to energy in the mind. So just that act of not doing anything is really the path here to let the energy build up again within, overcoming the drowsiness and then having the light in the mind instead, being freed from jail. Yay, free from jail. It's pretty nice, yeah. And then you come out, no loss of wealth. And what is that wealth? Well, that wealth in this case would be like the, maybe the joint happiness that you feel, the spiritual wealth that you have on the path. It is there. And uh, I think this is a kind of a, an important point as well, is that uh, sometimes in daily life you may, maybe you feel that your spiritual qualities are going down. Yeah? You try to meditate. You can't really meditate all that well in daily life because you're so busy. You're a bit stressed and tired and all of these kind of things. Uh, but uh, actually, don't worry too much about that. Uh, what really matters in your daily life is your ability to live well. Yeah? That is what really matters. Uh, and what will decide in the long run whether your meditation is successful or not uh, is how you live your daily life. If you live your la- daily life well, then when you come back on the retreat next year or whenever, uh, then you find that there actually has been progress. So, uh, you know, this is like here, the wealth hasn't been destroyed. The wealth is still there. It's just been kind of uh, covered over for a short time by these negative mind states or these difficult mind states. But all you have to do is relax and it all comes back again later on. So, 
Suppose a person was a bond servant or a slave. They belonged to someone else and were unable to go where they wish. But after some time they would be freed from servitude and become their own master. An emancipated individual able to go where they wish. Thinking about this, they would be filled with joy and happiness. Yeah, you are a slave to restlessness, a slave to craving. It drives you around, it tells you what to do, where to go. And you think it is good because you think, wow, yes, I get all the things I crave for. Restlessness drives me on, all of these kind of things. Not understanding that you are the slave and craving is the master. You cannot really do what you want. And this is why they say that, you know, the things that make you the lord over your own experience and make you in charge of yourself, give you authority over your own body and mind are things like mindfulness on the one hand, where you are mindful and aware, but even more profoundly, samadhi. Because that samadhi state is a state where you are, don't have this restlessness. Yeah, where the mind is clear, the mind is powerful, and you feel that you are in charge of yourself. Uh, whereas here is the opposite. You're not really in charge. You are craving is driving you on, uh, and you are the slave to craving. Don't feel in charge of yourself in the same way. With the samadhi and mindfulness, you feel like you are in control. You can do, you know, you, the, no longer, the defilements aren't in charge anymore. You can decide what you want to do. Uh. That is kind of one of the great benefits, this sense of liberation from these defilements. Uh, they are like tyrants of your mind, uh, making your mind impossible to use as you would like to use it. So you are no longer the slave, the bond servant, as Bhantasudato has it. <laughs> and so you are your own master, yeah, emancipated individual. And then you feel joyful and happy again because of this. Suppose there was a person with wealth and property who was traveling along a desert road uh, which was perilous with nothing to eat. But after some time they would cross over the desert safely, uh, arriving within a village, uh, a sanctuary free of peril. Uh, thinking about this, they would be filled with joy and happiness. So, um, this is the idea that uh, when you have Doubt, yeah, it is like being in a, on a desert road because a doubt comes in many varieties. But there, first of all, there is like the doubt about teachings. Yeah, I mentioned before the inner qualities, but there's also the doubt about teachings because these are also the dhammas in the world, the various kind of teachings. And you don't know, yeah, you feel that, yeah, all of these teachings, yeah, you're not sure about which one is good and which one is bad. And you kind of become an atheist and agnostic and you, you just live for the next nice car to come around and you enjoy the next kind of BMW on the market or you kind of live for all of these worldly things, yeah. And most people are like that. And it's kind of a very shallow life that doesn't have much meaning at all. It's like a desert. There is no joy there. There is no spiritual enrichment of your life. It's kind of dry life. Yeah, and this is kind of on a desert road. There's nothing really to support you. There's no nourishment for the mind that kind of makes you happy and feel good about yourself. It's kind of a nice metaphor, the idea of doubt, not really understanding what is going on in the world and uh, also doubt about what are good qualities within. It's kind of similar as well. Uh, if you don't know 
what the good qualities within you are, yeah, again, you, you, this uncertainty leads you astray, leads you unable to access the joy and happiness within. There's a dryness there. It's like a slightly desert road that you are trying to cross. So, you know, having something to have faith in, having something to have confidence in, of course, it can't be anything. It must be something that really is true. If we have confidence in the wrong thing and it turns out to be wrong, you're going to be very disillusioned down the track and it's going to feel terrible. But if you have confidence in something worthy of confidence, if you find that thing in the world that gives meaning to life and it kind of gives that extra nourishment to your mind and to your heart to keep you going, it's wonderful. It really enriches life. It makes life far more meaningful. Suddenly life has a goal, a purpose, a bigger thing. And this is very important for all of us, I would say, this sense of meaning and existence. And we kind of have this, uh, this, this larger vision of reality rather than this tiny little life yeah, and maximizing the kind of the material well-being in this life. The one who dies with the most toys wins. You know that saying? The one who dies with the most toys wins. One of the wealthiest people in Australia said that. I remember reading that. I thought... What is his name again? Packer, James Packer, or something like that. Yeah, he, he said that was kind of the idea. And I think he probably, hopefully he said it as a joke. I hope so. Otherwise, chief is, I feel sorry for the fellow. The one, who, <laughs> the one who dies with the most toys wins. You know, what can that, and of course, he turned out to be a very depressive kind of character. He had lots of problems with depression. If that's your theory of life, yes, you're guaranteed. You're going to be very depressed because it's kind of completely pointless. <laughs> it's utterly meaningless kind of life. And uh, sometimes we are kind of jealous about people who are wealthy. Sometimes we should have a sense of compassion for them because they, sometimes they have no idea what they're doing. Yeah. Anyway, yeah, so, this is, uh, so it's actually a wonderful thing to be able to find something in life which is as meaningful and powerful as these Buddhist teachings uh, and really makes life uh, gives life that extra dimension, which is so important for life to be meaningful. So these are the five hindrances. Yeah? And as you can see here, as you abandon these hindrances, it is natural that joy and happiness arises. You can see the mind getting liberated from these things. You can see the mind then, as a consequence, gaining these kind of qualities. So every stage of the path, more happiness, more joy. Yeah? Every time you give up something negative, Happiness comes as a consequence. And now we are moving towards the very high stage, uh, states of happiness uh, on this path. So let's see what the Buddha has to say further on. He says, uh, in the same way, uh, as long as these five hindrances are not given up inside themselves, uh, a mendicant regard them thus, uh, as a debt, a disease, a prison, a slavery, and a desert crossing here. That's a pretty bad group of things, isn't it? Debt, <laughs> debt disease, prison, slavery, all of these things at the same time. Yeah, you are, a, you are a imprisoned slave who is sick and you're crossing a desert at the same time and you're heavily indebted. That's kind of how, how sometimes when you have all these hindrances coming together, right? It's like, oh, I don't know what... <laughs> That's kind of... Whoa. Okay, so... Um, we better get out of this. Uh, but, but when these five hindrances are given up inside themselves, uh, a mendicant regards this as freedom from debt, uh, 
good health, release from prison, emancipation, and sanctuary. So, uh, this is what happens when your mindfulness of breathing goes well. Uh, yeah, this is kind of how things uh, come out. Uh, and uh, now that you have been able to give up these five hindrances uh, to a large extent, uh, things go even deeper. Now it starts to get really exciting. Yeah, this is where the path really starts to become incredible amounts of fun and joy and happiness. Uh, everything coming together at this particular point. Uh, Seeing that the hindrances having been given up in them, joy springs up. Being rapture, sorry, being joyful, rapture springs up. When the mind is full of rapture, the body becomes tranquil. When the body is tranquil, they feel bliss. And when blissful, the mind becomes immersed, or the mind becomes stilled. Yeah, and then comes quite secluded from sensual pleasures, etc. This is the first jhana coming up now, next. So, and this is this standard uh, expression of what can be called dependent liberation that you find everywhere in the suttas. Yeah, this same thing, and I mentioned before that how it comes in the sequence of dependent liberation, how it is part of the seven factors of awakening, how it is part of the Satipatthana Sutta how it is part of the six recollections that you're supposed to do. This is everywhere. This is one of the key ways that the Buddha describes the process of meditation, coming from a first-person point of view, yeah? the psychological point of view. Yeah? And it's just so beautiful. Yeah? It is so powerful. Yeah? It is, uh, again, you know, as these defilements disappear, this is what happens, this natural process. When they're given up, you feel joy. This is pamuja. And when the joy becomes even stronger, now you are meditating, you're hanging out with the breath, the defilements are kind of you know, uh, disappearing very rapidly. And as you do that, the joy becomes more profound. It goes from pamuja to piti. And sometimes you can feel this very powerful currents of joy going through the body and going through the mind. Yeah? This is the piti, the rapture, it is sometimes explained in, the, uh, in English. And then as you keep on meditating, you hang out with the breath, uh, m- things become more and more peaceful. Uh, and because they become peaceful, the rapture calms down a little bit. Uh, you get this incredible tranquility of the body and of the mind, this incredibly deep sense of peace. Uh, we are really solid in the seat. You don't want to go anywhere else in the whole world. You're like this rock, this mountain cliff, uh, unshakable by the wind or anything else. Uh, and you sit there and you think you're going to sit here for eternity. You are not, but that's what it feels like. <laughs> and as you do that, and this, you know, these are some of these very beautiful things that happen on the Buddhist path. We really start to understand this really is about the meaning of life. These are the things you have always wished for. You, once you experience these things, you have no doubt about that. Yeah? This is extraordinarily powerful. And the bliss that arises out of that tranquility, out of the previous bliss that you have, yeah? even deeper. Yeah, you notice here, joy, rapture, bliss, yeah? one deeper than the other one. There is a gradation here. Yeah? It goes deeper and deeper and deeper. becomes more and more powerful. And the mind becomes stiller and stiller and stiller as you go through this process. And eventually, it is so powerful, it is so subtle, 
It is so deep that you just have to stay there. You don't want to go anywhere else. Your mind is fully focused on the object. Yeah, and then that is where samadhi happens. Because samadhi is this idea of staying with one thing 100% without wavering, without going anywhere else. You become immersed, you achieve stillness. And this is around this point where you can enter these very profound states of samadhi called the jhanas. But you need that glue, yeah? This is the glue that holds you onto the object because the bliss is so powerful. There's nothing else in the whole world you want to do. That is the glue that allows you to enter these very powerful states. This is how it works. And it's just so attractive. And still, we can't, somehow, we are not able to sell Buddhism. Why is that? (laughs) The marketing should be so easy, yeah? All we have to do is turn to page five of this text and then bang, it is right there. Look at this. Wow, okay, I'll become a Buddhist straight away here. That's what really it should be like, yeah? Because actually it's very inspiring. And I think sometimes we need to be better at selling. Actually, it's not about selling, but at presenting it maybe, yeah? in a way that uh, brings this out, because it is actually extraordinarily attractive. Uh, and I think sometimes as Buddhists, we're not good enough. We talk too much about dukkha. Yeah, we should talk more about sukkha, sukkha instead, uh, because sukkha is more interesting. Yeah. Dukkha is too profound. No one really understands dukkha. It's too hard to understand. But sukkha, everyone understands sukkha. And that's so, so yeah. Anyway, so um, let's... Carry on even further. Let's go into the jhana states. Yeah, and now uh, we are actually coming to that very question that the Buddha was asking at the beginning. This is now, I think it's a long time ago since we asked, I mean, probably, you probably can't remember anymore what was going on at the beginning here. But I remember at the beginning we were talking about the idea of perceptions, right? And perceptions, are they, do they exist without cause or reason or do they exist because of cause and reasons? And the Buddha was saying, it exists because of cause and reasons. Perceptions arise depending on how we practice. And this is the practice, and then the perceptions arise. So that's, that's what comes next here. Quite secluded from sensual pleasures, secluded from unwholesome qualities, they enter and remain in the first absorption, the first jhana, which has rapture and bliss born of seclusion while placing the mind and keeping it connected. So this is the standard explanation of the first jhana in the suttas. The sensual perception they had previously ceases. At that time they have a subtle and true perception of rapture and bliss, born of seclusion. That is how, with training, certain perceptions arise and certain perceptions cease. And this is that training said the Buddha. So, this is the training. This is where perceptions change quite dramatically. Up to now, we have been percipient of the sensory world. Again, it's kind of slightly misleading to say sensual perceptions have ceased because the whole sensory realm has ceased. It is... Important to understand this in the right way. The whole realm of the sensory apparatus has actually disappeared completely. And in place of that, what do you have? In place of that, you have all you have is the perception of rapture and bliss, born of seclusion. That's all you have. Yeah. Um, 
Vivekaja Pitisukha is what it's called in Pali. And so this is what the first jhana is. There's nothing there except for the rapture and bliss born of seclusion. This is the new perception that has arisen because of this training. This is why this training is so magnificent, because this is what it leads to. It leads to pure bliss down the track. So um, then the Buddha carries on. Yeah, I'm not going to explain these four jhanas now. If you are interested in what this means, we can maybe discuss it at the Q&A this evening. But uh, I will just go through it because it's just, uh, I think, too much detail for the current, what we're doing now. And we want to move on to some of the other suttas as well. So let's just go through this fairly, fairly quickly. Furthermore, as the placing of the mind and keeping it connected are still, the mendicant enters and remains in the second absorption, which has the rapture and bliss born of stillness, or born of samadhi, or born of immersion, if you like, with internal clarity and confidence, and a unified mind, without placing the mind and keeping it connected. The subtle and true perception of rapture and bliss born of seclusion that they had previously ceases. And at that time, they have a subtle and true perception of rapture and bliss born of immersion, of samadhi, of stillness. That is how, with training, certain perceptions arise and certain perceptions cease. And this is that training, said the Buddha. Uh, yeah, it's interesting how it is called the subtle but true perception, right? Uh, it's uh, subtle because it is very refined and uh, true. And I think one of the ideas here about true is this idea that it feels very real. Yeah, these are very, very, very powerful experiences. They feel far more real than ordinary experiences. And the reason that they are so real is because, uh, first of all, the mindfulness is extremely powerful. You are completely undistracted. You're fully immersed in the experience. And it is incredibly blissful. It is so blissful that it is bound to leave an incredibly powerful impact on your mind. And uh, this is what they say. They say that this is like a trauma. It's like a positive trauma. Once you had one of these experiences, you can never forget them again. It's traumatic. It's like it leaves an impression on your mind. You don't forget that for the rest of your life. And this is how powerful these things are. So these samadhi jhana experiences are incredibly powerful and deep. And it's important to remember that. One of the mistakes that people often make is to assume that these are fairly easily accessible. Yeah, okay, I've got a bit of pity. I've got a bit of joy in my mind. Okay, my mind is kind of collected on the object, yeah, and there's a bit of Vitaka Vichara, his mind is moving a little bit, yeah. So I got all of the five jhana factors. Okay, must be first jhana. It's not as simple as that, because when you start to read, you know, the, like this description we just had now, there's lots of happiness to be had before you get to the jhana. There's lots of stages of tranquility before you really reach the full jhana states. These are very, very deep states. And uh, when you read the suttas and you see how the Buddha talks about these, uh, comparing them to the stages of awakening, saying they are the footsteps of the Tathagata, saying they are the distinction 
of knowledge and vis vision worthy of the noble ones, the Alang Arya, Nanadasana Visesa, and these kind of things, and on and on like that, you realize that there's something very, very powerful going on here. These are very, very deep things. And again, this is important to understand this, because if we get this wrong, we also lose out on the full depth of the Buddhist path. If you think a jhana state is something much more shallow than it actually is, you cannot practice the path to the end because you misunderstand the nature of the path. So actually, these things are actually very important. Yeah, so these are subtle but true perceptions, powerful things that have a far greater sense of reality than anything you had before. So very, you know, very in extraordinarily interesting things. And then you move on, developing one perception after the other. Let's go on to the next one here. Furthermore, with the fading away of rapture, a mendicant enters and remains in the third absorption, where they meditate with equanimity, mindful and aware, personally experiencing the bliss of which the noble ones declare. Equanimous and mindful, one meditates in bliss. The subtle and true perception of rapture and bliss born of immersion that they had previously ceases. At this time they have a subtle and true perception of equanimous bliss. That's how, with training, certain perceptions arise and certain perceptions cease. And this is that training, said the Buddha. Furthermore, giving up the pleasure and pain, an ending of the former happiness and sadness, a mendicant enters and remains in the fourth absorption, without pleasure or pain, with pure equanimity and mindfulness. The subtle and true perception of equanimous bliss they had previously ceases. At that time they have a subtle and true perception of neutral feeling, a dukkama sukkha, neither pain nor pleasure. That is how, with training, certain perceptions arise and certain perceptions cease. And this is that training, said the Buddha. So here we have come to the very end of the Noble Eightfold Path. Yeah? It ends with the fourth jhana, and at this point, this is where you can expect to have the most profound insight. This is where you become an Arya or a Noble One or an Arahant even at this point. Uh, so we're going to come back to the idea of contemplating the five khandas later on. Uh, but here, the Buddha, instead of uh, showing the results of the path, uh, he takes the idea of the stillness of the mind even further, uh, yeah, even more giving up, refining the mind even further. And he goes into the immaterial attainments. Immaterial attainments are not jhanas. Uh, Jhanas are part of the path, immaterial attainments are not part of the Noble Eightfold Path. So these are like an alternative development you can do if you want to. Yeah, it is possible to do, but it's not really an integral part of the Buddhist path. Come to the four jhanas, that is actually enough. That is what the Buddha recommends. So this is like an alternative development. And the reason why the Buddha is teaching this is because we are trying to Remember at the very beginning they were talking about the cessation of perception? Where does perception end? So the Buddha is talking about the gradual refinement of perception all the way to the end. And this is why he's taking the discussion in this direction. 
So now what we're going to have a look at, a very quick look at the immaterial attainments. Uh, so uh, furthermore, uh, a mendicant going totally beyond the perception of form, uh, with ending of perception of impingement, uh, not focusing on perception of diversity, aware that space is boundless, uh, or focusing on space is boundless, enters and remains in the dimension of infinite space. The perception of luminous form that they had previously ceases. And at that time, they have a subtle and true perception of the dimension of infinite space. That is how, with training, certain perceptions arise and certain perceptions cease. And this is that training, said the Buddha. Furthermore, a mendicant goes totally beyond the dimension of infinite space, where that consciousness is boundless, enters and remains in the dimension of, of boundless consciousness. The subtle and true perception of the dimension of infinite space that they had previously ceases. At that time, they have a subtle and true perception of the dimension of infinite consciousness. That is how, with training, certain perceptions arise and certain perceptions cease. And this is that training, said the Buddha. Furthermore, a mendicant going totally beyond the dimension of infinite consciousness, aware that there is nothing at all, enters and remains in the dimension of nothingness. The subtle and true perception of the dimension of infinite consciousness that they had previously ceases. At that time, they have a subtle and true perception of the dimension of nothingness. <coughs> that is how, with training, certain perceptions arise and certain perceptions cease. And this is that training, said the Buddha. So, that is going up to the third of the four immaterial attainments. And uh, so you can see the gradual changing of perception becoming more and more refined, there's less and less left, until all you have is the perception of nothingness. Yeah, you perceive that there is nothing. I don't even know, I have no idea what that actually means, to be honest, but you perceive nothing here. Yeah. It's kind of really weird, yeah, it's a kind of strange when these things get taken to their, li their very limit. And uh, so that is uh, where this goes. And at this point, you're starting to reach the very peak of perception itself. This is pretty much almost as far as you can go with perceptions. And then, of course, what comes beyond this, it gets very exciting, yeah? What can possibly lie beyond perception? What is the further development after this? And this is what we're going to talk about tomorrow morning. So stay tuned, and then tomorrow morning, we're going to come back to this. So that is all for now, so please have a nice afternoon and evening, and we'll see you back again at 7 o'clock here.